This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Thanks for having me here. Earlier this year, um, and in February, um, as Steve mentioned, um, just before I spoke at Interaction 18, um, there was a funeral for this great man, Hugh Masekela. It happened in, at Wits University in Johannesburg. And at that event, people came, music, musicians and artists came from all around the world to celebrate the life of this man. And at the funeral, they sang, um, they told stories, they danced, celebrating um, the life and his contribution um, to, to music and to art in South Africa. Hugh was a hero of mine. I never met him myself. Um, and this talk I give almost as my, my eulogy to him. Um, and I will share a bit of why I think he's, he's a hero. Hugh was born just outside, uh, clicker not working. Sorry, one second. Hugh was born just outside uh, Johannesburg. Um, and growing up, um, they had always had music in their house. Uh, music has always been a strong part of South African culture. And when he was at school, one of his masters um, gave him a trumpet. Um, he gave him a trumpet because he was a, uh, he was a troublemaker, um, and he also loved music. And so by giving him the trumpet, the master thought, master's a terrible word, um, but it was used in like old schools. Anyway, his teacher um, thought that it would be a great way to keep him out of trouble. Um, so he gave him this trumpet, and he said, you know, uh, play this thing. And Hugh fell in love with it. Um, and in particular, he loved playing jazz music. That is what he was listening to on the radio. Um, and on the radio, he was listening to the records of people who were over in New York, um, where there was a big jazz movement going on. Uh, they were playing bebop, and um, bebop was just being born. And artists like Dizzy Gillespie, Max Roach, Thelonious Monk uh, were doing amazing things with the instruments that they were playing and exploring new modes of expression um, through jazz music. And Hugh was in love with this um, all the way in South Africa. Um, so much so that he would break rules. So for example, there was, there was apartheid in South Africa and there were places that he couldn't be. Um, but he was breaking rules, crossing the railway, uh, breaking curfews um, to go hang out with his white friends whose parents had record collections that he couldn't find back in his own township um, to listen to records that weren't being played on the radio. Um, these were the things he was doing to listen to his music. His teacher somehow managed to get in touch with uh, Dizzy Gillespie, um, who is a, a, a fantastic uh, trumpeter um, over in uh, New York. And Dizzy um, was uh, hanging out with uh, Louis Armstrong. And Louis Armstrong is the guy who sang the song, um, What a Wonderful World. And um, Louis Armstrong sent his own trumpet to Hugh over in South Africa. It turned out that not only did Hugh love jazz music, but um, jazz music was loving him back. Um, he found this movie by uh, Kirk Douglas. Um, he, so anything that had anything to do with the trumpet or jazz, he was trying to consume. He found this movie called Man with the Horn, in which Kirk Douglas plays a, a, a musician who played the horn. Um, and this guy, like you, was a troublemaker. Uh, but uh, he also got all the ladies. Um, and he was like, this is my jam. This is what I want to be about. I want to be the man with the horn. Um, so this was, this was Dizzy. Um, so Dizzy was over in New York. Um, and he was uh, changing the way music was listened to. So at the time, if you were going out in New York, there was a strong likelihood that you were going to be listening to jazz music. Um, this was the popular thing. It was all on, all on the radio. This was the mainstream music that everybody was listening to, right? And Dizzy Gillespie was one of the artists who was at the forefront of this. Um, but the musicians were be becoming unhappy. They were becoming unhappy because to remain mainstream, it meant that they had to make records that would sell. Not records that they enjoyed making, but the ones that fit into the formula of a certain length, of a certain format, that would be friendly for the people who are listening to them on the radio, or people who wanted to use them in adverts and in movies and in things like that. And the musicians thought that this was making their expression stale. So in between their sessions, what they started to do was to do something more interesting, which was uh, explore something called bebop. Bebop was not music that you could dance to. Bebop was loud, it was very, very fast, it had lots of chord changes and complex rhythms that were actually not for people to dance to, but were more for the musicians to express themselves. It was the musician for musicians. It needed a close ear to understand what was being played and why it was being played that way. Um, and musicians were enjoy jazz musicians were really enjoying 
uh, doing this. But at the time, it was only available to, for them to do during, in between their recording sessions as opposed to being able to do that on a commercial basis. Um, but Dizzy Gillespie was one of the leaders of that. Um, and this image, what you might see is, um, Um, so what you might see, this is an image of Huma Sekela receiving uh, the trumpet from uh, Louis Armstrong. And it was strange because uh, Louis Armstrong was all the way in New York. Huma Sekela's over in Johannesburg. They were exchanging letters um, somehow um, through kind of, uh, they had to write them in code because the letters were being opened. Um, but they were talking about music. They were talking about politics. Um, but Louis sent him his own horn. And uh, this was Hugh kind of receiving it. And he really enjoyed, um, you know, using it. And it was a, a formative thing for him. He used it all the way through his, you know, to, through a big part of his career as he, as he developed. From school, Hugh formed a band with some of his mates. Um, and the band was called the Jazz Epistles. They recorded the very first jazz album to ever be recorded in South Africa. Um, and they were becoming celebrities in their own right. They were playing sold-out shows in the townships all across South Africa. Um, they were being invited to play at uh, rallies, political rallies. So the ANC party, the party that Nelson Mandela was leading um, and is known for, um, they were having rallies. And as part of those rallies, they were playing music. And Huma Sekela was being called to kind of play music at, at, at those shows. Um, he was on the rise as a star um, in his own right. Then in 1960, something terrible happened, the Sharpeville Massacre. Um, the uh, people who were living um, in Soweto, in the township, were very unhappy about the conditions under which they were, be they were, they were living. And they protested outside a police station because they were um, upset about police brutality. Um, and during this protest, the police came out and they fired into the crowd um, and they killed women and children. Um, it was a terrible thing. Um, but this only served to add fuel to the fire. And so people became even more angry and there were more riots. Um, and so in response, what the government did was to instill curfews. And so what they said was um, black people were not allowed to be seen in groups of 10 people or more at any time. Um, there were curfews. You had to be home. You had to be in certain neighborhoods by certain times. So for a musician like Huma Sekela, being able to play at shows was no longer a thing because you couldn't have a show with 10 people. Or you could, I guess, but that wasn't what they were looking for. Moreover, because he had been affiliated with the ANC, it meant that he's, he, he was a target, a political target. And so he almost had to go into hiding. And so as a way to kind of escape the persecution of the apartheid regime, um, he managed to get into uh, jazz school in London. So he leaves South Africa, he gets smuggled out of the country, he goes to London for a while. While he was in London, it was okay for him, but um, it wasn't really what he was looking for. And then um, one of his um, friends from childhood, uh, Miriam Makeba, who was over in the United States, she was having her own career. She calls him up and she's like, yo, if you're interested in jazz, um, then you need to be here in New York because this is where jazz is evolving. This is where um, the, the center of what jazz music is going to be um, is, is, is actually, um, this is where it's happening. So he, she buys him a plane ticket um, in September of 1960. He gets on an airplane and flies over to New York. On the day he arrives, Dizzy Gillespie calls him up. And Dizzy's like, yo, um, I've heard that you're here. We're going out clubbing tonight, right? I don't care if you haven't slept, we're going out. So he takes him out to all the hottest jazz spots in New York. Um, and in one night, Huma Sekela went from being somebody who had just had Louis Armstrong's trumpet. He was learning music by listening to records, listening to the radio. And he parachuted right into the middle of this group of people who were making the music that he aspired to, the music that he was learning from. He was, in that one night, not only did he meet Dizzy, he met Thelonious Monk, he met uh, Max Roach, um, he met Charlie Parker, all the people who he had idolized, he was now friends with. Um, in 2018, I can imagine that he would have been exchanging, following them on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> I don't know, they'd hang out on Instagram. Maybe they have a Slack channel and he, you know, he ends up joining that. Um, but this was the kind of thing that had happened to him. And his story was, his life was full of stories like this. Um, these epic moments where that, that, that just changed his life. So now he's a part of this group. And um, he's hanging out with them. Sometimes he gets to play with them. Um, and the aspiration of a jazz musician at that time was to become a band member of one of the big bands. You wanted to be in Duke Ellington's band. You wanted to be in Charlie Parker's band. Or you wanted to be in one of those big organizations. That was making it, if you like. Um, so he was trying to figure out how he could get in. And sometimes they'd let him record with him. Um, and he'd hang out in the recording sessions, make, uh, you know, uh, play as a session musician. Um, but he wasn't able to get into any of the bands. Um, he kept having conversations with them, and they kind of, yeah, maybe you can hang out, but you can't really join the band. And this was frustrating him. Um, and for years, for, for a couple of years, he was trying to figure out why things weren't working out. 
That was until he met this man, Miles Davis. Miles Davis is one of the coolest jazz cats to ever have lived. Um, he has recorded one of the, the in fact, the best-selling jazz record of all time, which also happens to be one of the top 10 records, uh, uh, top 10 selling records of all time. Um, Miles Davis um, heard about Hugh, um, and he heard about Hugh trying to join these bands. And he pulled him aside and he said, how is it possible that you have traveled thousands of kilometers from South Africa, you find yourself here in New York, and now that you are here, you are spending your time trying to become like one of us. New York is full of jazz cats from all over the United States who have been playing here longer than you have. They have relationships, they know people. Um, they have learned the styles that are played in America. Why would you spend your time trying to be like one of them? And he wasn't understanding this. And he was saying, don't you recognize the fact that where you come from is a source of richness? Your own heritage allows you to play music and listen to music in a way that we don't. Because where you're from in Africa, you sing songs differently than we do. You know rhythms that we don't. If you can understand that, if you can harness that, and you can put that with the techniques that you are learning over here in New York, you will be able to make something transcendent, something that neither we could make or you could make by yourself, but something that would uplift the entire jazz community. You will be making something that is new. Well, at least that's what you heard Miles Davis say. What Miles actually said was, take your shit from home, put that with the shit that you learn here, and that's gonna be a motherfucker. <laughs> Miles was a man of very few words. Back where you work, there are talent acquisition teams scouring the globe looking for people that are not like you. But when the D word comes up, it has become easy to start thinking about identity diversity. Identity diversity is about who you are, your race, your gender, your religion, your ethnicity, and so on. In our teams and organizations, we want to strive for representation and, e and equality when it comes to identity diversity. And back where you work, um, those people are looking not only for people who don't look like you, but also they're looking for people who don't think like you. They're looking for diversity of thought. Why? Because smart folks like Scott Page have looked at the mathematics, and they have proven that when our teams are built with people who don't think like us, those teams are more innovative. You may see an equation on the screen now, and that equation is a mathematical way to describe the wisdom of crowds. Not only are diverse teams smarter and more innovative, as this is suggesting, but diverse teams are more robust, and they adapt to changes faster. This mathematics says that excellence, true excellence, requires diversity of thought in our teams. People who don't think like us have different perspectives. They see the world differently than we do. And when we see the world through their eyes, we increase the scope of what we, uh, or we see more of the world. But these folks' perspectives um, are rooted in culture. Not only is it that they have a different perspective, mean different meanings, attitudes, ideas, and so on, but they also bring different cultural practices. There are things they learn where they come from. Right? And not only that, they are the products of their own culture. So like he was exploring, you know, they, they have different music and all those things. In the culture that we, in, in Western culture at the very least, we have this idea that we can just bring the perspective and we can get the value of that and everything is going to be fantastic. I'd like to argue that just as much as building diverse teams with different perspectives helps us to build products that in, that are more aligned with the diversity that we see in the real world. I'd like to argue that building diverse teams also increases the opportunity for teams to fail. Why do teams fail? This very smart business school man, Patrick Lencioni, um, has, an, has a theory about this. He calls it the five dysfunctions of a team. And his argument is that When a team 
is dysfunctional, there are five things that you need to be looking out for. The very first thing, and the base thing that you need to be looking out for, is that the team has got, uh, okay, this is broken. Anyway, they've got an absence of trust, if you look at the bottom of the pyramid. An absence of trust is when people cannot be open with each other about who they are. It doesn't mean that you don't trust the work they do. There are people you work with who you know that if you ask them to do a thing, they're going to be able to do that. You say, can you deliver this thing on Thursday? And the likelihood is that that person will be able to do the work that, that you have asked them to do. The trust that Patrick talks about here is the trust that is born from vulnerability. It is the trust that comes or the trust that is shown when people can say, I'm sorry about what I did yesterday. That was the wrong thing for me to do. You are much better than me at this. Can you show me how I can be like you? When you work in a team where people can talk like that, when your leaders can speak like that, that is a team that has got strong trust. And when you've got strong trust, it means that you, can, you, you avoid that next level, which is the fear of conflict. Conflict sounds like something that we should be avoiding. But in the best teams, conflict is actually necessary. Because when there is conflict in the team, that is a way for us to have strong conversations and strong arguments that lead us to the truth, conversations that lead us to the best answer, conversations that mean that nothing festers in the corner that we are not comfortable with. Everything can be shown, can be, can, can be brought to the light, and we can debate that thing. When we have trust, we can have healthy conflict. And when we have healthy conflict, it means that everybody can be heard, and it means that when everyone is heard, they can commit to an idea, or they can commit to doing a thing. A lack of commitment happens when people feel like they haven't been heard. And when people haven't been heard, what will happen is when the thing fails, they'll be the first people to say, see, I told you this wasn't going to work. I wasn't committed to this thing anyway, right? So you want to make sure that you can have healthy conflict so that everybody can be heard. Whether they agree with what's being done or not is a different thing. But at the very least, they can be heard. And we can agree that this is the thing we're going to commit to, and this is what we're going to do. When we've committed and a team can commit, it means that we can easily hold each other accountable. Because we've committed to this thing, when things don't work out, we can call out our behaviors. We can call out our performance and say, yo, this isn't what we agreed, right? We agreed to get to this point, but the way you're behaving right now isn't getting us to where you need to be, right? And when you've got this avoidance of accountability in your team, it means that mediocrity can thrive. You will have people in your team who everybody knows aren't the people who should be on that team, but we can't hold each other to account on that. You will have people on your team who don't, don't do things on time, but we can't hold each other to account on that. Right? And when we can't hold each other to account, then no one is paying attention to the results, or at the least the results that matter. The results that people will be looking for are the results of my career, my team, my budget, as opposed to the results that are relevant to the product, relevant to the entire organization. Right? So these are the five dis the, the dysfunctions, and uh, he, there's a great, this, uh, you know, Patrick Lingioni has got a great book um, that's definitely worth looking at that, that have got these, these, these ideas in it. So my argument is that these are the things that we struggle with at the best of times. When we bring people who are different than we are, and we are doing this actively, and we want more and more of them, I would argue that we make these things even more likely to happen, right? Let's talk about how that might play out. So I left, um, so originally I was, I was born in Zimbabwe. I left there when I was 18. I went to the UK. I was going to study medicine. Um, didn't get the grades. Ended up being a designer. Uh, not to say that designers are, are, are failed pediatricians, but you know, things happen. Um, so nevertheless, um, I find myself um, in the UK. I became a user experience designer. And um, on the very first project that I worked on, well, not the first project, the first company that I worked in, some wonderful people, um, they gave me the opportunity after a couple of years to, um, to look after my own project. The company was very small, about five people. It meant that in a, in a company of that size, it's likely that everyone is doing a bit of everything. And so the project I was working on, I ended up working on some, uh, some project management, um, which um, is, is not my strong suit. But nevertheless, this is, the th this is part of the work that I was doing. Um, a few weeks into the project, um, things started to slip. I didn't have a handle on the scope of this project. Um, and as is typical, the client will ask for a little more, you know, a little more, a little more, a little more, and there was a lot of scope creep, and we weren't meeting our timelines either. Um, I knew this, I could see what was going wrong, and I knew what I needed to do to be able to fix it beyond what I was capable of. I needed to ask for help, I needed to speak to my boss and explain to him that, listen, the thing that I'm doing is actually not working out. 
um, and uh, I need some help in fixing this thing. But what I actually did was that I kept waiting for the perfect moment to raise the conversation. Um, and that's not gonna happen in a small, busy company. Um, and it kind of took time um, for me to kind of try and raise the issue. And by the time I had the opportunity, the client had already called my boss and said, do you know what's going on with this project? Um, and my boss was like, no, I, I'm not sure. School me, what's going on? Um, and the client explained that, you know, things were going all right. Um, my boss was really unhappy. Um, understandably so. The client was unhappy. The client pulled the project. Um, they pulled budgets. Um, and that was a big loss for a very small company at the time. Um, I felt really bad because not only were these folks, you know, uh, my employers, they'd given me my first job, but they were also my friends. Um, and we'd been hanging out for a while. But nevertheless, a few days later, uh, my boss calls me in and he says to me, Farai, you didn't do enough to save this project. I'm going to have to let you go. I was 22 at the time. This is my first job, and on the first job I got fired. Um, and the thing that I was getting fired for was something that I was sure I understood what I needed to do, but I just hadn't done the right thing at the time. I left, and for the next six weeks I was um, looking for a job, and while I was doing that I did a lot of reading. Um, and while I was reading, I came across a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers. And in Outliers, Malcolm talks about uh, several things, but one of the things he talks about is a spate of crashes um, by uh, Korean airlines um, between 1970 and 1990. They lost more than 700 lives. This is unheard of in, in aviation. It's just not, you, you don't have these kinds of losses in, in that kind of a time period. Um, and it's so much so that governments were telling people not to fly, these, you know, fly on these uh, aircraft. Um, some of them were probably stopped from landing at certain airports. Um, and in one particular instance, uh, Malcolm tells the story of an aircraft that was uh, flying on a difficult pathway because what they needed to do was to um, land on a runway that was on the other, right on the other side of a mountain. So what they needed to do was to kind of approach the mountain, fly over it, and then immediately kind of go down and, and, and land. To add to that, they were flying through a storm. So they couldn't use their eyes. They had to rely on their instruments to get by. So uh, these folks are flying, and um, what happened was, or what was heard when they analyzed what happened on the, on the black box recorders was there was strange conversations that were happening between the captain and the co-pilot. Um, the co-pilot was heard saying things like, it's a very stormy today. The storm seems pretty bad. Things like that, that seemed kind of innocuous. Um, about two minutes before the crash, um, the co-pilot suggests that the pilot kind of maybe, you know, increase the altitude a bit. It looks like something is going to go wrong. Um, he repeats it about two minutes later, um, but that was, by that point it was too late, and the captain tries to uh, evade what was coming up, and they crashed into the mountain, and the lives were lost. In listening to this recording and other recordings from similar flights, one of the things that, that the investigators found was peculiar was this relationship between the pilot and the co-pilot. It turned out that there is something that is called a high power distance index that existed in the, the, these cockpits of Korean Airlines. High power distance index means when you are working with someone who is senior than you, or when you are in a relationship with someone, like, and um, when I say relationship, whether it's your, your aunt, your uncle, or something like that, or your boss, someone who's senior than you, how godlike do you think that person is? Do you feel like you could approach that person with anything or any issue? Or is it the case that you see that person as someone who is unapproachable until they open the door for you to speak? It turns out that in Korean culture, there is a high power distance index. So much so that the co-pilots used to carry the captain's bag to the airplane, not because that's my buddy, but because they felt that that was their job. They were not peers, right? There was someone who was way above them. And what that meant was, when they were in this difficult situation, the co-pilot didn't feel like they could tell the captain that they were messing up. They couldn't explain that something was wrong. They couldn't raise the issue that needed to be raised at the time it needed to be raised. And as a result, lives were lost. This was not true of every single instance, but it turned out that it was a trend in more instances than was comfortable for folks. When I read about this, something about it feel fam felt familiar. It felt like the scenario that I had been in. It turns out when I was reading more about it that Zimbabwe, in Shona culture where I'm from, there is a high power distance index. So the relationship that I have with my dad, people who are senior to me, means that I will not be able to just raise an issue when I want to. It means that I have to wait for the right moment. Sometimes I can't even go direct to my dad. I have to tell my aunt who will tell my uncle who will then tell my dad. And then we can have the conversation when we've sat down, right? 
those were the things that, was ha that were happening to me when I was 22 in London. And I didn't understand that this was something about me, my culture, where I'm from, that was starting to show up at work. It was affecting my ability to trust and be trusted, my ability to engage in conflict. All of those dysfunctions that were being described by Patrick Lencioni were the things that were coming up in the place I was working, but they were more than just personality things. They were more than just team things. They were things that I believe were coming from my culture. And so this is what I mean when I say that the culture that you come from can start to show up at work and can do so, one, in a positive way, but it can also be something that is a negative thing when we don't recognize it, when there are lots of people like me from different cultures landing together in teams and trying to work together. This power distance index thing was um, raised by this gentleman called um, Gert Hofstede. Gert Hofstede is one of the, one of the preeminent social scientists of our time. Um, and he did a big study for IBM. And it is recognized that the study was just of IBM employees, about 100,000 of them around the world, all without SurveyMonkey. Um, but nevertheless, they managed, they, they managed to get that done. Um, and in the survey, what, what he found was um, that in every country, there is a dominant group of people whom if you put anyone from that dominant group in a particular situation, there is a very strong likelihood that they will respond to that situation as, as somebody else in that group, right? And that these groups differ from, the, or from country to country. So what will happen is the way the Ghanaians respond to situations is very different to the way Tanzanians might respond to situations. And he was able to find some scales on which he could start to plot different countries and how they might behave. And this is what those scales look like. So power distance index, individualism, feminine, masculine, uncertainty, avoidance, long-term orientation, and restraint and indulgence. And this is what they translate to. So the power distance thing is the thing that I spoke about earlier on, which is about um, do you come from a culture that leans towards it being egalitarian or hierarchical? Um, is your culture more collectivist? So is it more about we or is it more about I? Is it more nurturing or power-seeking? How comfortable are people in your culture with ambiguity? And in planning for the long term, right? Um, and are you happy to grab happiness right now or to wait for a bit and you know, to, to, to enjoy that later? When I read about the power distance in the index one, I was, I was really, really glad because it seemed to be describing a situation in my life and it seemed to be describing something that I could improve on or at least understand and improve on and help to kind of support my career and my own development. This was fantastic. But everything else, while it was fascinating, didn't seem very practical to me. It didn't seem like something that I could bring to work and understand you know, how I can use it to, to better what I was doing. This was until, until I came across the work of Dr. Aaron Meyer. Dr. Aaron Meyer is a principal, uh, is a professor at INSEAD Business School, which is just outside France, and they coach um, um, business executives. And Aaron Meyer knew of the work of Gert Hofstadter, but also in the work she was doing where business executives from all around the world would come to France and work with her, and she traveled to them as well. She started to see similar things. She started to see that there were these dominant groups that seemed to be from the same country and seemed to be responding to certain situations in very similar ways. It wasn't that she was looking to stereotype, but she started to understand that there is a cultural thing that happens here. There are cultural biases that influence how people are showing up at work. And so she, um, in her great book, Culture Map, which I would recommend all y'all kind of have a look at. I mean, she's not paying me for that, though, by the way. So, but definitely have a look at this thing. Um, she has these scales. And on her scales, she talks about how you decide, how a, a culture persuades, how a culture communicates, how cultures disagree, how cultures evaluate, lead, trust, and schedule. These things felt much more like things that I could understand, that I could develop in myself developing the teams that I was working with and practically use them to improve how we are getting on together. So I'm going to be sharing some of these things with you um, that, that Aaron kind of um, discusses. So when it comes to deciding, cultures can, be, can lean towards either being consensual or top-down. Um, and so what this means is that in consensual cultures, decisions are made in groups through unanimous agreement. Everybody must be part of this agreement. Um, and in top-down cultures, decisions are made by individuals, usually by the boss or the hippo, the highest pers paid person in the room. Right? So when I was in South Africa, um, before I moved to Canada, um, I was working in a bank, and we were working on a banking app, and for some reason, we launched the tablet app before the phone app, I don't know, um, something about <laughs> wanting to be first to market with the wrong thing. But nevertheless, um, we, we, we shipped the tablet app, and on the day it ships, the CEO kind of has a media event, holds up the tablet app, and is like, this is what we've done, this is fantastic, and everyone is like, yeah, this is dope. And then um, 
uh, he continues talking and he says, oh, by the way, uh, the phone app will be ready in 90 days. And everyone in the media is like, that's fantastic. We on the team were not happy because that was the first we had heard of it and we were hearing about it on the television. So the next day we get into work and all of a sudden we have to hit this deadline. The CEO done said it, so we have to deliver it, right? So for the next 120 days, we were breaking our backs, sleeping under our desks, trying to land this thing, and we, you know, we managed to get something out the door. But it was a really, really painful time for everybody concerned. And the pain was because not only were we trying to solve the problem of trying to design something great and to engineer that thing and ship that thing right, but every time we got to a new department that we needed to work with, we're in a bank, right? Everybody has to be involved. Every time you get to the compliance folks, every time you get to the infrastructure folks, we had to tell them what the CEO had said. We had to convince them that yes, absolutely, this is the right thing we need to do, and then convince them to do the work we needed them to do that we could ship our product. So not only were we trying to solve the problem of product, we were trying to solve the problem of getting the organization aligned around delivering the thing we wanted to do. It was a terrible time. Let's contrast that with uh, what you might see in Japan. Um, which is called Rinjishi. And in, in the process of Rinji, what might happen is, if a decision needs to be made, some folks who are close to the decision might step outside and have lunch together. Um, they will have some discussion around this and maybe come to some sort of agreement. That agreement will then be brought to lower level management. They will debate it, come to a conclusion, take it to middle management. That will then go to senior management. By the time it comes to the CEO and the CEO has a press conference about this thing, the entire organization has the, at the very least committed to doing a thing in a certain way. What that means is that when they pull the trigger and they're like, we need to land this thing, everyone is aligned and all you have to really focus on is the problem of trying to get the product out the door. Not the product of trying to get the organization aligned so that you can get the product out the door, right? So those are two contrasts of top-down and consensual cultures and how they might work. There is no better or worse here, right? But what is important to understand is that there are differences and there are benefits and non-benefits. Right? So in American culture, even though in, in the States there is uh, talk of freedom and equality and many of these things, the reality is that American culture is very much top-down. Um, the boss says a thing, and the very best thing you can do as an employee is to get behind what the boss has said so that you can land the thing. That is kind of what is expected of you to do. Whereas in more egalitarian cultures, so if you go to Sweden, for example, or in Japan, the likelihood is that there is going to be consensus. We want to hear what all the different perspectives are so that we can make sure that we have the best wisdom, that wisdom of crowds I was talking about earlier on, there is a stronger likelihood that we're going to get that. But that might be a thing that some might consider takes time, and there may not be enough time to wait, right? So it's just about understanding the big differences between these things. Yesterday, I was delighted to see um, in, Lauren, in Lauren's um, um, keynote, she spoke about um, the Decider app, which I'd never heard of before, right? And what's fantastic is they put all the different ways you can make a decision, you know, in front of you. So if you've got this thing and you need to make a decision, you literally walk through kind of some choices. Um, and what it allows you to do is to understand what is the best way to make a decision, right? And what impact, uh, you know, could that have? Or what are the constraints under which you need to make that decision? This was great for me to see because what it shows is that um, Decision-making, initially, you might need this tool to help you understand what you need to do. But if you're using this often enough, there's a strong likelihood that then it becomes a team that your team, uh, you, that's a, sk a skill that your team is good at, right? And so decision-making is a skill. And what needs to happen is that your team needs to agree on how you want to decide. They need to be skilled up on it. Agree on how you want to decide. We'll say, for this project, on this team, this is the person who decides. Or we have to have a democracy, or everybody else has to agree. Whatever that thing is, as a team, let's normalize. Let's all agree on how we want to make that decision. And then we can step forward and, 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 and hold ourselves to account on how we do that. When it comes to persuading, there are principles first cultures where you start, when you're explaining something to somebody, you want to start with the principle or theory first and then present the facts to back it up. Whereas in applications first cultures, you start with the facts and then you tell us how you got to those facts. So imagine that you've con conducted a bit of research. Right? You were sent out to India, you were asked to find out how your product is going to perform in India. Then you are now explaining this to your German clients. And so when you're presenting to your German clients, you open up the executive summary and you say, here's what we found, and here are our recommendations for what we think you should be doing. By the time you get to the end of the first slide, there is a strong likelihood that all the people in that presentation, particularly the executives, will start asking you questions. What the hell? How did you get to these findings? What methodology did you use? How many people did you speak to? Why that particular methodology, right? 
That's because in German culture, they prefer to have the principle first. Explain to us the thinking behind what you were doing. Explain to us the methodology. Then we can extract, and then we can look at your facts and we can understand where they have come from, right? So that is a, a difference that's worth understanding when you've got clients that are across cultures or when you're working in teams across cultures. You contrast that with what might be expected in North America, which is that the likelihood is that you show that executive summary and then you tell us how you got there first. If you start off by trying to explain all the methodologies and all the things that you did and et cetera, et cetera, they'll be bored and they'll be like, can you just get to the facts, please? Right? We want to get to what we want to do because the, likely, the, 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 the bias in North American culture is that you show us the case study. Show us what happened and we will be able to extract some facts from that. Right? Or we'll be able to, oh, sorry, we'll be able to extract some principles from that. So the, the important thing to know here is how do different cultures understand arguments and what is the best way for you to present an argument? But conversely, what is the best way for you to listen to an argument? Imagine now that there is somebody who is coming to your work for an interview and they start presenting their work and they are principles first, whereas you are applications first. And you are struggling to understand what they're doing and you come out of that interview and you're like, that person has no idea how to put an argument together or how to present themselves. That's not because that person can't do that. It may be that there's just a disconnect and that we don't understand how that person presents ideas. That's not to say it's a blanket statement that that'll be the case every single time. But there is a strong likelihood that things that are shown to us that seem confusing or seem structured in a way we don't necessarily appreciate or understand might be because there is this difference between principles first and applications first presentation. And then something different happens when we talk about um, in, the, in the Far East. So this is an example that comes out of Aaron's book. And what you might see on the left here is a photograph of a headshot. Of, of a woman. There were, there were both groups, there was a, a group from the east that was asked to take a photo of a uh, person and a group from the west that was asked to take a photograph of a person. The photograph on the left was taken by the people from the west. It's a headshot. The other one um, was taken by the folks from the east. The groups were asked to critique each other's photographs. And the people from the west were saying, why do we need all this other stuff, right? You were asked to take a photograph of a person. We have taken the headshot. We have captured the person. Whereas the folks from the east were saying, how can you know that person if you do not know their context? I had to get the full context so that I could understand who the person was. You can imagine how powerful it is for us to recognize that and harness that in our work, the idea of including context. Turns out that this way of thinking is founded in the differences between Confucian thinking, which is about the whole and the context as opposed to Western thinking, which is more about specificity. We believe we can extract something from its context and understand it fully, and that can be sufficient for our needs. There is something in the middle. There is a balance of these things that needs to be understood. But at the very least, it's worth us recognizing that when we are speaking to people from the Far East, and it seems like they're rambling, it seems like they're beating about the bush and not trying not or not able to get to the point, it may be that they're trying to make sure that we've understood the full context before we get to the point, and we need to listen in the right way. When it comes to communicating, there are low-context cultures and high-context cultures. So um, I left Zimbabwe in uh, 1999. I went to the UK. I didn't go home for about seven years. And um, I, I ended up going home. And when I did, I went, you know, you go on a tour and you visit all the rallies. Um, and I went over to my uncle's place and I got a lift from one of my friends. And so they dropped me off and, you know, I, I went to visit. Um, so we do the greeting. Um, and um, then my uncle says to me, Wawiawega which in Shona means, did you come here by yourself? And I was like, no, 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 you know, I got a lift, you know, from the homie, and, you know, so that's how I ended up here, so, you know, and he's like, uh-uh, wawiawega. He says exactly the same thing again. I'm like, I, I, I'm not understanding what's, what's going on. And then he says it a third time, wawiawega, with emphasis now. And I look at my aunt, I'm like, yo, what's the man saying? And she's like, what your uncle is saying is, uh, did you bring a wife? <laughs> I'm like, what? How did we get here, right? <laughs> and with those few syllables, what my uncle was saying was, you and I come from the same culture. You are a young man of marrying age. You left the house, you went to study. You now have a paying job, you pay bills. You have now returned to the land of your parents and we, as stand-ins for your parents, want to know whether you've brought a wife and we expect you to be bringing us a wife. So when I say these few syllables to you, you should be understanding all of those things, 
right? That is an example of high context communication. In high context communication, what is said with the mouth is only a percentage, a tiny percentage of the communication. The context in which those words are said is also part of the communication and you have to understand what's going on. But it can lead to confusion. Like I was like, well, you know, what, what do you actually mean? Let's contrast that with low context cultures. In low context cultures, uh, you may have gone to a presentation course that says something like, for you to make a great presentation, first of all, what you do at the beginning is you tell the audience what you're going to tell them. Then you get into your presentation, you tell them the thing. At the end, you remind them what you just told them. This is the mark of a great presentation. In low context culture, we value repetition, we value clarity. This is the way we make sure that we are heard and we are understood without mistake. This is what you might find in companies where you might be in a meeting in a call with everybody else, there was an agenda that everybody was privy to, but straight out of the meeting, someone says, oh, please can you write up that email and write up all the actions and make sure that everyone's got a copy of that. In low context culture, that seems like a good way to be a professional. In high context cultures, they might be like, do I look like a kid? These are all grown-ups, right? Everyone was in the meeting. Everybody knows what they needed to do. Why do we need to keep repeating it? In high, people who are not familiar with high context cultures might be unhappy because it feels as though people are not saying what they mean. They say a few syllables and they mean all these other things that I don't understand. So imagine you're bringing people from high context and low context cultures together and you're trying to work together and communication is weird. The recommendation from Aaron here is that if you're in multicultural teams, low context is best for everybody. Repeat, 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 clarify. That means that there can be no ambiguity about what happened. If you are on a call and you agree the thing, get on Slack and write it up. Get on email, write it up, right? So that everybody knows that's not covering your ass. That's just making sure that communication is clear among all the groups that needed to be, uh, that, that were involved, that needed to understand what was going on. These are the kind of things that you might see when uh, you have multicultural teams and they struggle to communicate. Imagine that this is me speaking. I'm speaking, and then that is you speaking. That overlap there represents what a lot of us do when we're in conversation, is not only are we trying to hear what's being said, but we are already getting ready to reply. We listen to respond, we don't listen to understand. That is a thing that happens a lot. And then obviously, while you're speaking, I'm also trying to interrupt you. Now, in Hispanic and Italian cultures, what you might find is that this is the norm, right? Is that people are speaking and that involvement, when I interrupt and I'm part of what you're saying, I am excited, I am showing you that I am engaged in exactly what you are talking about. And somehow we're able to extract the information that is in there, but it feels like it just, it just doesn't stop. It's this conversation that just keeps flowing, right? Then you contrast that with, um, Cultures where I might speak, then I take a pause. And then I give you an opportunity to say something. Then you pause. Then that's my turn to talk. This is what you might see um, in Eastern cultures, Chinese culture, for example, right? Where the expectation is that you are going to make a break for me so that I can speak and I will offer you the same. This is how we communicate. This is the expectation. Now bring your Chinese and Spanish counterparts together in a meeting, right? So we've flown the Spanish over to, to Beijing and we're having our, our review or whatever that thing is, right? Full day workshop, full day meeting or whatever it is. And at the end of the day, um, the Chinese are like, these people do not stop talking. They don't shut up. What is wrong with them, right? The Spanish might be like, they flew us all the way from Spain to Beijing and they didn't say a word. What is wrong with them, right? It's not that they didn't say a word because they didn't want to, but because there was no gap. There was no space. These aren't necessarily stereotypes, but when you come across people who don't seem to be saying much, let's not assume that there is something about introversion or something else, but it may be a cultural thing where the only expectation is that you're going to make space for them to speak. When you bring multicultural teams together, making sure that you make space for other people to speak is really, really important in any conversation, in any meeting. When people are running and speaking over each other, that's not necessarily the best thing. It means that there is no space for others. So it's just a thing that's, that's, that's worth recognizing. When it comes to disagreeing, there are cultures that lean towards confrontation and some that lean towards avoiding confrontation. In the team that I work in, 
Um, well, it, I, I work at Shopify, but one, one of the new infrastructure teams, there's a lady who I work with who comes from Burundi. And um, I met her in my first few weeks at Shopify. Um, and we were talking, and she was telling me her experience. She'd been there longer than I was, uh, than I had. And she told me about some of the very first one-on-ones that she had with her lead. Um, and during those one-on-ones, the lead would be like, I'm perfectly happy with your work. Um, I'm unhappy with the fact that you always say yes to everything I ask you. And she was like, what? <laughs> you asked me to do a thing, I do it well. What's the problem? It turned out what the lead was trying to say was that um, the lead needed, or what the lead ultimately made clear to her in subsequent conversations was the fact that the very best thing that she could do for herself and do for that company was to question the strategy and the tactics that were, they were following. Not to question them to be obstinate, but because in questioning them, that was the best way for her to show the organization that strategy from her perspective. When she asked a question about why are we doing this this way, it opened the opportunity for them to go, oh, we didn't see that in our strategy. What you're asking us is a thing that we hadn't thought about before. Sometimes they could have that conversation and come out of it and agree exactly the same thing, and that's perfectly fine. But at the very least, they've had the benefit of her perspective. Whereas from her, where she was coming from, in her culture, to engage in confrontation with somebody, with anybody in your group, is to increase the potential for harmony to be broken. She was looking at disagreeing with her boss as something that might jeopardize her career. And these are the differences in the cultures, right? And so we spoke earlier on about the idea that conflict is actually necessary for teams to be great. But when you come from a culture that doesn't necessarily appreciate confrontation in public, in front of other people, that might be a problem. Culture might stop that conflict that you need from actually happening. You don't get that perspective. So you've got those cultures in which disagreement and debates are positive for the team and open confrontation is appropriate and won't negatively affect relationships. And then you've got those cultures where if we have a conversation or if we have a confrontation or if I disagree with my boss, even if it isn't over something big, that can literally lead to an entire breakdown of the entire relationship and we may never speak to each other again. Right? So it's about recognizing these differences in between teams. And the most important thing um, that, that we need is this idea of, um, that they have in Germany um, of Sachlichkeit. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's a really complex word to say. Sachlichkeit, and I learned this last week from a, a friend of mine who works at VW in San Francisco. Sachlichkeit means the thing about the thing. We can debate the thing without being confrontational with each other. It's not personal. I'm not saying that you're terrible because this design doesn't work, right? I am just discussing the thing. So Toby, um, the CEO of Shopify, he's German and he talks about this a lot. And he talks about, he says, if you were to be a fly on the wall in the conversations that they have in their board meetings and, all, and that sort of thing, you would think the company was going to blow up right now. Why? Because they have mastered the art of being passionate about the thing and walk out of that and go straight to the bar and be friends, right? Being able to debate the thing, being able to, obje to be objective um, is, is absolutely critical. Then there are, uh, there's uh, the idea of evaluating and giving feedback. The work that we do is it's important to be able to do this. And so there are um, cultures where direct negative feedback is welcomed. You can be blunt about a thing, right? Even in front of other people. And then cultures where indirect negative feedback is preferred. So you have to be soft, subtle, and diplomatic, and only in private. So at this point, I want to raise an important thing, which is um, that the scales that you see here and the countries that are sitting on these scales, first of all, it is not inclusive of all the countries in the world, right? Um, because they haven't, the work hasn't been done yet. And I think it'll be a fantastic project to be able to get data from around the world and to understand how different cultures behave. The other thing is that these scales are not absolute. It is not important where a country sits by itself on the scale. The important thing is that cultures are relative. What's important is who is to the left or the right of that country, right? Or the person who is from that country. And within that, we have to recognize that there, is, there are personalities that come to play. There are all other factors that might mean that people are different. It is not to stereotype and say everybody from Sweden is exactly the same. But there is a strong likelihood that the majority of people who are from there might behave in a certain way. But there might be some who act very much like they're from Japan. And that's, that's, that is to be found, that's to be expected. That is diversity at work, right? That's the reality of diversity. But the idea of culture being relative is important. So you can imagine a situation where, for example, 
um, uh, you're working with, uh, you're, you're from the UK and you're working with a team from Nigeria. And you have created a prototype, you've thrown this thing up online, and it is being, it, they've reviewed it, and now you're kind of talking about what happened. The Nigerians are not happy with the, with the work that's been done. And they're like, this is absolutely not what we agreed to. It is unacceptable. There is no way we can ship this to the client on Friday. First of all, you've entirely disregarded the style guide that we agreed two weeks ago. The copy on the third page is not what the client signed off, and the interactions that you have on this form, well, these are just atrocious, right? So I'd appreciate you going back to review these things, look at the style guide, look at the copy that the client supplied, um, and then let's come back and meet again on Friday and decide whether we're gonna ship this thing. The, fro the folks from the UK might listen to all this on the call, but when they get off that call, they'll be like, we are not going to work with those douches again. <laughs> Man, that is some harsh feedback. How can they speak to us like that? Flip it over. The Nigerians have done the work, and the folks from the UK might be reviewing it. You might hear something like, Toby, this is uh, looking good. It looks like we're almost there here. Um, there's just a, a couple of things that you might want to look at um, that you know, might be worth reviewing. Um, I don't know if you remember, we uh, had a discussion about the style guide a couple of weeks ago. Um, there are some things that maybe don't align as well as, as we expected. Um, I'll forward you that email that the client sent through with the, with the feedback. Uh, you might just want to have a look at those changes and see you know, um, if they can be uh, fixed. And that form, you know, the, the interactions, they're looking a bit, a, a bit iffy. Um, but, so you might want to have a, a quick look at that. But otherwise, um, it looks like we're, we're looking good. Okay? <laughs> the Nigerians will get off that call and they'll be like, sweet, we killed it. <laughs> we're going to ship this, right? But the English were just as unhappy. But culturally, it might not be expected for English folks to be much more direct than that, right? That's not to say you don't find folks who are direct, but that's the expectation. And so when it comes to reviewing work, you can imagine that being, you know, miscommunicating like that means something, you know, terrible because that product will ship and the English will be very unhappy and they'll never want to work with the Nigerians again because of what's happened, right? But it's just about how cultures kind of lean towards either direct negative feedback or indirect feedback. So what you want to do is to skill up your team on the method that you want to use for critique. Right? So where I work, when you join the organization during your onboarding, we have a method of critique that we agree to, and we introduce you to other methods of critique. Right? So on day one, when you walk in through the door, we are going to talk to you about feedback. And this isn't just about feeding back around design, but it's feeding, up about, feeding back about anything in the company. Right? And then we agree on how we want to do this, and we can hold each other to account. When someone is not speaking or giving feedback in the way that we expect, we can talk about that. Right? And we can hold each other to account and make sure that we're speaking to each other in the right way. That's going to ultimately re result in us being better and the organization itself being better too. When it comes to leading, I spoke a bit about this already. I won't go too much into it. But this idea of power distance. Right? When you've got people who expect flat cultures, working with people who expect hierarchical cultures, how do you normalize it? Right? How can that team work well together? They might, there will be clashes. So the experience that I had was that I came from a hierarchical culture, and in my mind, I expected that wherever I was going, and I was trying to recreate that. And being able to recognize and communicate the, why the organization is structured the way it is, why this team is structured the way it is, and making sure that everybody understands why we are doing this. And that's not to say that I need to change, but I need to accept that where I am and the team that I'm in works in a certain way, and I need to behave in a way that shows that's reflective of that understanding so that the team might succeed. When it comes to trusting, there are cultures that are based on, that where there's, there are task-based, uh, trust is built on tasks. So if we work well together, if you're a great professional and I'm a great professional, we can trust each other and that's great. Whereas in relationship-based uh, cultures, trust is built through social activities. The expectation is that we're going to hang out, we're going to know more about each other. And when we do this, then we can trust each other. Right? And so what's been shown here is that, um, and Aaron talks about this, the idea is that uh, breaking bread is one of the most, uh, the best ways to build trust across cultures. So when a team sits, or when a leader sits with their team for breakfast, or sits with their team for lunch, when they sit together, that is a great way. It will not build all the trust that is required. It will not build that vulnerability-based trust that Patrick Lencioni talks about but it's a normalized way that starts to build a basis for everybody, right? Beware of drinks. <laughs> no, seriously though, 
a lot of teams think that, oh, we're going out for drinks and that's a way to build trust or to build the team, build a relationship. Going out for drinks excludes a whole bunch of people, right? It excludes people who don't drink. It excludes alcoholics. It excludes people, drinking is usually done in the evening. Moms, dads, people who can't go out. People will feel pressured to be there. They won't enjoy being there. So if you're gonna break bread with your team and use that as a method of trying to build a team, lunch, breakfast, these are great ways to do that. So consider that as the way you work. Uh, oh, that should be there. So when it comes to scheduling, um, there is something interesting that happens here, right? There are cultures that value linear time, where plans are approached um, sequentially, one thing at a time, and we do that on time. And then there are flexible time cultures, where uh, plans are approached in a fluid manner, right? So values based on being able to adapt to what's going on. So if you were working with German folks, there's a strong likelihood that you're gonna be in a meeting, the agenda will come out like five weeks before, um, it'll be decided and you will know what's going to happen. And when you get into that meeting, uh, the things that need to be spoken about will be spoken about sequentially. If something else comes up, there's a strong likelihood that we're gonna put that in the parking lot. We're not gonna discuss that right now, right? Because we had an agenda that we agreed and we're gonna do that thing. And this is fantastic for an organization and particularly complex organizations because what that means is that the behavior of that team is going to be predictable, right? Because we had a plan and we followed the plan, it means that we can predict when a thing is going to end. This is valuable. Predictability is one of the things that allows us to forecast and to plan for what happens in the future. And this is great. But then if you contrast that with cultures that might value flexibility, it may be that um, they are more likely to explore a new thing as it comes up. And so new opportunities that come up in the process of a discussion during a meeting or during a project, they might kind of go, actually, this looks quite interesting. Let's have a look at that. Not to say that that's going to be successful, but it's a new opportunity that they think is worth exploring right now. And that might be a source of, uh, of advantage. So whether you're linear or flexible isn't necessarily a good or bad thing, but it's about understanding the advantages and disadvantages of each and trying to figure out what is right for our project and our team and what we are doing right now. When we are setting up our planning, do we agree that we are only gonna follow the plan or do we agree that we're going to think about certain opportunities that come up and we're gonna have a process for evaluating whether we're going to pursue those or not, right? Some people might use this as a stereotype to say, well, yeah, it turns out that you know, these people are always late or these people are always on time. And it's not about that, but it's more just about understanding the understanding, about understanding how people approach plans and how they want to execute on those plans or be a part of them. So these were the eight things that I learned about um, when I was looking there in Maya's work that helped me to start to understand how I show up at work and how my culture influences how I show up at work. And increasingly, I've been starting to talk to other teams about this, right? And the teams that I work on as well to say, do you know that these things matter when it comes to the success of our team? And that when we are multicultural, that these things can, can, be, can exacerbate the, the challenges that teams face when they're trying to gel the challenges that we face when you're trying to manifest the benefits of having diversity on our teams. If you are under the impression that diversity is just about shades of brown, then you're not paying attention. You're not paying attention to what the world needs from our industry. You're not paying attention to what your peers need from you. It'll be worth us thinking about these two folks, and being more like them. We can afford to be more like Miles Davis when he spoke to Hugh Masekela. He saw something in Hugh that Hugh didn't see in himself, and he pointed that thing out, and he said, you need to look back where you come from because you're leaving some stuff out there. Bring that here, but know it, understand it, harness it, combine it with what you have so that you can make something that is transcendent. Why is that important? Because culture hides more than it reveals, and strangely enough, what it hides, it hides most effectively from its own participants. A very complicated way of saying that your culture influences how you behave and you have no idea that it's doing it. When someone can see that and help you understand what's going on, that is a valuable thing that you can do for yourself and you can do for other people. We can also all afford to be more like you, Masakela. When it's something is pointed out to us. Or when we are joining teams that you know, are not like, or, or join teams of people that are not like you. It's important to understand where you come from and do that with passion and do that um, not just on the surface, but to kind of really dig deep and understand where you're coming from. 
when we do this, when we know our shit, we can put that with the shit we learn wherever we go. And that's going to be a motherfucker. <laughs> Peace. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.